Um, I'd invite you this morning to uh, open your Bibles to Matthew 18 this morning. We're going to be looking at a topic uh, that I think is impressed upon our hearts to uh, pursue and look at as a church. Typically, we are in the book of Galatians. We're on the home stretch there. We have a couple messages left there, but uh, we are going to look at a topic this morning called Biblical Church Discipline slash Restoration. The biblical discipline can easily be retitled Biblical Restoration. I think it's a very important topic in terms of the church, the life of the church, and having a healthy Bible-believing New Testament, Bible-following, Christ-honoring church. We've got a great opportunity as a Bible church here in Anchorage to be biblical, to follow God's word. And uh, I actually, we, if you're looking to take more notes or to read more deeply on what I'm going to be talking about, we have a philosophy of ministry paper on biblical church discipline and restoration that's in the back for you on the way out. Um, if you want to read that later, these notes that I preach from manuscripts are always posted online. You can read more there as well, because I am going to go to several different texts of scriptures of the scripture, and I don't want you to be fumbling around, but I want you to be able to pay attention as we work through um, what I think is on my heart and on our hearts from the Lord this morning. One of the marks of true conversion is a hunger for holiness. It's not a popular doctrine today as much of uh, Christianity is blurred in terms of the church and the world or worldliness. But moral purity is something that is in the seedbed of true converts and should likewise be in the DNA of the gathering of converts, which is the church. People who have submitted their lives to Jesus Christ as Lord individually and corporately should walk with the integrity of holiness. Holiness. It's something that we sometimes fear and yet at the same time should embrace and love. Another word for holiness is purity. 2 Corinthians 7.1 is where Paul exhorted the Corinthians to live holy and he longed for holiness for the Corinthian church. He says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. God is holy, so he commands believers to be holy. Be holy as your heavenly Father is holy, 1 Peter 1.15. God's word is also a reflection of God's holiness. God's word is pure. God's word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Psalm 12, 6, the words of the Lord are pure words like silver refined in a furnace on the ground purified seven times. Psalm 119, 140, your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. Holiness, it's expected. It's, it's our personal expectation, isn't it? It's what we long to be. And yet, sometimes within the church, Believers will wander away from holiness. They won't follow in the path of holiness. And yet the church, by necessity, should seek to preserve holiness among her people. Paul expressed this desire, 2 Corinthians eleven two. I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband 
to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Christ's own end for believers is holiness. He wants the church to be a pure and chaste bride. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he, Christ, might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church and himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Holiness comes through sanctification, but before you have sanctification, you have salvation, where you are reconciled with God. Christ is our holiness, Colossians 1.22. He, Christ, is reconciled in his own body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So it's expected. Holiness is expected of us. It is our status It's also commanded in Scripture to be followed as we are Christians growing in grace. We're not perfect, but we should love and pursue Christ who is holy and desire to be holy and a holy people. So on occasion, Christians wander away from the fellowship and believers find themselves faced with a decision as to whether they will pursue wandering Believers who are ensnared in sin. We recently covered this in our sermon on Galatians 6, 1. You can go back and listen to that about restoring those who've been caught in a trespass. becomes necessary for the church and its shepherds or elders, shepherds, pastors to go after people who are straying and seek their repentance. God holds the church accountable for wandering sheep and we know the beautiful parable that Jesus gave about the lamb that wandered away. He told the parable of the hundred sheep. If he, the shepherd, has lost one of them, does he leave? Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. You see the motivation of restoration. This is the rubber meeting the road Christianity. This is the joy of Christian life is going on rescue missions for people who are straying and caring for them and seeing a rejoicing family surround someone who's been restored. Verse 8, or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? The primary means for church restoration or church discipline, restoring wandering sheep or believers is known as church discipline or biblical restoration. The steps are clearly laid out by Christ who gave it to his disciples, which are applied throughout the New Testament for the church. Matthew 18 is where we find these steps. Matthew 18, 15 to 20 is where I want to read. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. The process doesn't stop there, though. Listen to verse 18. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. There's four steps that are laid out for us here. I um, am taking those steps and the outline from our church philosophy of ministry, something the elders affirmed years ago when I first came. But um, these four steps are clearly laid out. And then at the end of the four steps, there's a dynamic of what God is doing in heaven is also being adjudicated on earth. And what's happening on earth in the church is being adjudicated in heaven. This is very, very serious work. The most serious work, I would argue, within the church. It's not superiority complex. It's not a prideful thing. It's not being judgmental. It's loving and caring brothers and sisters about brothers and sisters in the body of Christ and discerning where they are spiritually and if they are in danger and going on a pursuit for restoration. So the four steps, let me just talk them through. Any believer has a responsibility to confront another believer. Any of you, Galatians 6 says that as well. You who are spiritual, anyone who is walking in the Holy Spirit is called upon to seek a brother and sister who has strayed. It's a responsibility to go privately to confront another believer. If the believer acknowledges his or her sin and repents of it, the confronting brother has won him to a place of unity and restoration. The Greek word won or winning is the idea of winning money in some other context. It's like gaining a salary. It's the idea of you have great wealth if you win your brother or sister to Christ. Let me just say this as well. Most of church discipline or most of biblical restoration is being done all the time within the church. I've been part of step one conversations myself. I've been part of many conversations in step one with some of you, and you've been in step one conversations with each other. It's where you say, hey, can you clarify to me what you meant when you said this or when you did that? Or I, I've noticed this in your life. Can we talk about this or that? That really is step one. That's opening a conversation with someone else about where they are spiritually and what they're doing. It's helping one another in the body of Christ. You almost could put it under Galatians, where Paul says in our last few sermons, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. It's coming under someone and helping them spiritually with the word of God. 90% of church discipline ends at this step. Most, Most of it never reaches a public level. Sinning believer does not repent, though, then... The other believer is to bring witnesses. This is step two, confronting the believer who has a responsibility to bring two or three additional believers. I don't understand this to be two or three that have actually observed the sin, but they could have observed the sinning dynamics or patterns um, in a sinning brother or sister, but perhaps they're just 
people who are there to help, maybe a spiritual leader, maybe a community group leader, maybe just a trusted, respected friend, where the circle of of intimacy where it was one-on-one has to, by necessity, widen to a concentric circle out one more level where you bring in two or three witnesses to witness what's going on, to make sure that the person that's confronting the other person is doing it biblically and gently, to, do it, to, to make sure there's accuracy in the accounting of what is happening and making sure that the person being confronted is being treated fairly. In a spirit of gentleness, right? Galatians 6.1. Restoration, Galatians 6.1. And it's the idea also that if that believer rejects the admonition, rejects the confrontation, there are witnesses to say, you know, we also saw that as well. We're trying to together discern whether or not that brother or sister is repentant or not. The confronting believer has the responsibility and this responsibility is broadened, and it's broadened to two or three witnesses. That's uh, verified in, or rooted all the way back in Deuteronomy 17.6 or Deuteronomy 19.15, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every fact be confirmed. This is, again, very serious work that's done in the church. 2 Corinthians 13.1 is where Paul carried that Old Testament principle forward in the New Testament church. Matthew 18 does it as well. Well, step three says that if the offending brother does not repent from the second confrontation, the sin is to be told to the church. This doesn't happen very often in churches. Public correction is rare. Maybe in one sense it's rare because steps one and two are live, and that is the spiritual immune system within the body that's working and functioning well and perfecting holiness. But I think for the most part, historically, churches have given themselves to growing churches through programmatic you know, dynamics and through opening the doors so widely that they become undiscerning as to whether or not someone is a believer or not at all. Whether or not someone's profession of faith is even asked or not is rare within many churches. The idea of health is identified more in terms of the size of the church rather than the follow-through with scripture. Step three is a scary thing. It's a public step where um, the offending believer does not repent or has not repented with the second confrontation, and it's told to the church, the whole church, This is normally carried out by communicating to the leadership of the church. This would be a scenario where someone, the witnesses go to the elders and say, listen, we have been meeting with a brother or sister in Christ. You know, there's the time between step one and step two is not specified. So this could have been over a year's time, a month's time, a week's time. Could be a long process or a short process in step one that goes to step two where you're really trying to work with someone and identify them and their repentance. A lot of times you're gauging the timetable of discipline in terms of the effects that it's having on the rest of the body of Christ or not. If it's creating a spread dynamic of division or divisiveness within the body, then the speed and move to go to step three might be accelerated. But step two has been discerned to being not effective so far. It's effective in the sense of faithfulness, but it hasn't affected repentance yet. 
So it could be carried to the leadership of the church who on behalf of the congregation then takes it to the entire congregation. And typically this would be done in a public service. And I would argue that because we meet and gather under preaching, because we meet and gather together with the Lord's table, because we meet and gather together with baptism on this public level, that this step three is that same church and should be handled on that public level most of the time. All members of the congregation are enjoined at that part, and this is the This is the motivation for step three. They're enjoined together to plead with the offending brother or sister to repent. It's an all call to the whole assembly. Again, the ecclesia, the called out and called together, the body of Christ to go and pursue someone who is straying in the spirit of that shepherd that went for that straying lamb. It's a call to a person to repent of his or her sin and come back to the right relationship with God that he or she has professed up to this time. After a sufficient time that's determined probably by the eldership, the sinning brother, whether the sinning brother has repented or not, this either leads to a step four or stops at step three. If someone repents, then the process stops If not, then step four. This is where the brother or sister who is sinning is refusing to come back to Christ and there isn't a discernible repentance. So by virtue of Jesus' own pronouncement, step four is enacted and he is to be, and this sounds very severe and very strong, disfellowshipped or excommunicated from the body of Christ. And that could include attendance of services. So that sounds really, really severe. And I'll try to answer the question that might be being raised in your own heart where you would say, wouldn't you want the brother or sister to continue to attend services to hear the gospel? Perhaps, but let me build um, the, the more case of the New Test- that the New Testament gives us in step four as we go. But the idea here is one of separation. It's where someone is hurting the family of God and is hurting themselves by staying affirmed and countenanced within the body of Christ. It's creating a confusion where his sin or her sin is being aided and abetted within the body of Christ instead of being dealt with where you have to say, listen, you have to deal with the consequences of your sin. And we can now, because we've gone through step one, step two, and step three, we can now most assuredly say you're acting as an unbeliever. We don't know where you are spiritually now. And so we are now having to lift the benefits of your membership to the body of Christ. And if you are present, we are basically coming to you, pleading with you to come to Christ, that's what your presence would mean. Step four is to make the church and the world distinguishable where it otherwise becomes indistinguishable when someone is sinning and known to be sinning and then remains as if he or she is a worshiper within the church. This person is treated as someone who's rejecting the gospel of Christ and is warned of the consequences of his or her sin and exhorted to come back to or come to a saving relationship with Christ in the first place. If the erring brother or sister later repents, this individual, 
and requests to be reinstated in the body of believers, he must, this is a process that, at least according to our philosophy of ministry, is laid out here. That person meets with the elders, is evaluated in terms of his or her professed repentance, and then at the discretion of the elders, is restored to the congregation. And this, again, at a public level, a public meeting, a public restoration. At such a time, he or she could be or should be restored to all the rights and duties and privileges and responsibilities of the fellowship and membership of the church. Uh, Here's a statement that I've always thought of in terms of repentance and restoration. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said that a person's repentance should be as notorious as his or her sin. So when someone's sin comes through a process of stage three and stage four, it is public. It's affecting things on a public level already. And when someone comes all the way back to Christ or to Christ for the first time, that should be celebrated on a public level to alleviate confusion, and to celebrate and vindicate God's faithfulness and glory through the process. That's pretty straightforward from Scripture. The seriousness and public nature of this process, though, deserves a wider understanding from the whole council. What I did is I opened up several passages from the New Testament that basically serve as examples and anecdotes and a way to model what church discipline would look like in the New Testament. Jesus taught this to his disciples, and then the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, the church was born, and then those principles from Matthew 18 have played out throughout church history. But in the New Testament, there are clear examples of New Testament church discipline playing out, and I want to just open those to us this morning. Church discipline is proven from six bases. So I'm going to basically prove church discipline in these steps through these examples. First, number one, biblical discipline and restoration glorifies God and therefore proves our obedience to him. If we cooperate with God in church discipline, we prove God and to a watching world that we desire to glorify him. Church discipline is something that people hear about and people know about, and it proves that God is glorious, that God's word is believable and should be followed. In the New Testament, Romans 16, 17, there was the issue of division within the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians, the issue of division was in the early church. I am of Paul. I am of Cephas. I am of Christ. Right? Paul said, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you so that you're not identifying with me over against another person. But divisiveness and division was found rife within the early church. And Romans 16, 17 is where Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. You'll see over and over again that immorality, like being divisive, and a watering down or an obstruction of doctrine, those two things always go hand in hand. False teachers will always change or tweak or shift Scripture to get away with their immorality or get away with what they preach, which is a worldliness within the church. There's always this one-two punch where people will water down truth to countenance immorality. And it slips in. You'll see it slip in sort of under the radar again and again. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. Here's another sin, the sin of being idle. Laziness. You say, that's not a sin that we have to worry about today, except for the fact that, Most young men aren't 
fully gainfully employed till they're 50 now. No, I'm just kidding. But I mean, there is a there is an epidemic of laziness and that ties in with playing too many video games down in the basement and staying home. But there, it, you know, it says admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. There's an admonition to be taking place. And we went through this last week, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 15. Idleness was being called out within that church. Paul said, I command you, brothers, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 15, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. Keep away. The Bible says bad company corrupts good morals. Don't be around people who are lazy and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us who are straying from the teaching of the apostles. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. So he's calling out people who are freeloading. But with toil and labor, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Paul's saying, we're examples. We're not doing this. Imitate our faith. Verse 10, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So this is an apostolic command from scripture. We in the New Testament church would use a clear command of scripture and admonish someone and say, you need to stop doing this. What was the serious sin within the church that was part of the inspired text for us to learn from? Laziness. People being lazy or idle, unwilling to work, freeloading. Paul said, look, you can't aid and abed this kind of sin within the church. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Now look at church discipline here in verse 14. It gets very specific. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. Take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed That's severe. It's severe when you begin to put it in practical steps that could happen in a 21st century church. You're identifying someone who's a bad influence on the rest of the flock, and you're separating from that person. Verse 15, though, says, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. This is step three. This is when something becomes on such a public scale that you're not saying that they are not a brother or sister in Christ. You're going to that person in a spirit of love, in gentleness, with restoration, and you're saying, I can't affirm what you're doing, or in this case, being lazy, what you're not doing. I can't affirm that. I have to create some level of separation, but I'm warning you as a brother in Christ. I'm not treating you as an enemy. So similar, but with a couple additional elements, there's confronting the confronting of pastors and elders or shepherds, 1 Timothy 5, 19 through 20. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Which step is that? Step two, class. That's step two. With elders and shepherds, typically because we have the job of calling people out um, with the word of God on their sins, It creates a vulnerability. It just does. I mean, you're communicating truth to people and people are wrestling with their own sin, but we're all sinners and we're all vulnerable to our own weaknesses and sins. And we need to be confronted as well. 
It's just there's a carefulness that's instructed here because of the vulnerability of shepherds where when you confront someone, you take other people with you. You do it in a dimension where there can be immediate discernment both to protect the shepherd but also to protect the witnesses because you're confronting someone who's in leadership. And this should be part of the regular practice that goes on in the church as necessary. Look at verse 20. It's very severe. The stakes are very high when you um, find out that a pastor or elder is sinning. Those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. This is step three. So that the rest may stand in fear. The public nature of the office calls for unrepentant elders or pastors to be brought to step three. But anyone in the church could be part of a step three public announcement. This is what makes membership so meaningful. And, um, you know, it, it makes it one of those things that people have to think through very clearly. Because when you become a member you are signing yourself up to this process to participate in it, to reach out to people and to be willing to be confronted in step one, step two, step three or step four as necessary. It's very sobering and that's, I think, why membership sometimes gets watered down or, or it's, it's lessened in the minds of some. False teaching and false teachers are divisive and they bring poison into the church that needs to be addressed. Look at 1 Timothy 6.3. When you, the longer I'm in church ministry and in local church dynamics, the more I see why Paul picked out and used and specified specific sins because these are the things that we deal with regularly within the church. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy. So it's leaders who are promoting something. They're soft-selling the gospel, but they want to mix it up. They want to be controversial. And they have a craving for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions, where you begin to suspect things about people. And constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. I mean, we don't have time. I mean, we probably should take the time to unpack every one of these sin dynamics, but they're so severe. It's the idea of someone who is coming into the church. He's arrogant. He's filled with himself. He's watered down the gospel so that he can get away with his presence and what he wants to achieve. He has a craving for controversy, quarrels about words. He's straining at gnats. There's envy that's being produced by this, jealousy, the people are splitting up in relationships, there's slander going on, and suspicions about leadership or suspicions that are created within the body of Christ. There's a friction in the body of Christ. It's people who are hardened in their mind. They're, they're starved of the truth. The, the word of God is not being brought to bear on the issues. And then people are being driven by money. It's a godliness for a means of gain. Titus 3.10 What are you supposed to do with people who sin in this way? For as a person, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once, then twice, have nothing to do with him. There's that very controversial moment again as we just read the plain word of God that there are moments 
where we need to create a healthy separation from people for their own good and for the sake of the body of Christ. It's knowing, verse 11, that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Baptist theologian John L. John L. Dagg said this, quote, a shepherd who won't fend off wolves will soon find his sheep consumed. I think that's true. The largest anecdote and example of church discipline is the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 5. And I've, I'm not going to unpack every verse here, but this is, it's the entire chapter. It's 13 verses that speak to church discipline. This is a living example. This is a test case that you can read through and say, oh, this is what it looks like. 1 Corinthians 5.1, it's reported that there is sexual immorality among you, the kind that it's not even tolerated among the pagans. Even the world thinks this is gross. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Again, this is assuming step one, step two, and now we're at step three. If you just countenance it and you just let it go within the church, then the world is horrified by that. The church and the world are not indistinguishable anymore. The church claims to be a holy place, but it's not. And Paul's saying you're arrogant if you allow that to happen. Verse 3, Paul begins to appeal as Christ's proxy here. Remember, in Matthew 18, Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, what? There am I in your midst. This is not talking about some prayer meeting where we hold hands <laughs> and pray. That's not what that verse means. It means when you are doing something that as serious as church discipline, Christ is especially present in that moment. This is a holy moment that we are talking about. And so Paul wants to emphasize that. He says, I'm present in spirit, verse 3, as if present, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So he's speaking from Christ's vantage point. Whatever's bound on earth will be bound in heaven. Paul is saying, I'm giving a binding judgment in the name of Christ on this man. He says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the presence of our with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are deliver, to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So are we supposed to deliver someone over to Satan? What is that? That's step four from Matthew 18. When you think about the idea that the world is Satan's realm, uh, the Bible calls Satan the prince of the power of the air, Right? the God of this age, the God of this world, lowercase g. It's when Jesus was being confronted by Satan himself. Satan said, I will, if you bow down to me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth. What did Satan mean by that? He meant that he was satanically controlling false thinking, false teaching, false world religions. These are all under his realm and his domain. These are wrong-headed, hell-inspired Evil ideologies are wrong ways to think, whether it's secular humanism, postmodernism, Buddhism, Confucianism, New Ageism, Taoism, all of these isms are satanic. 
It's the idea of saying to someone, and Paul is saying here, if this person is so hard-hardened and unrepentant, then the only thing you can do as good parents is to show that rebellious son the door and say, listen, we cannot, we cannot any longer provide for you, feed you. You've got to get out and get out into the real world and see what it's really like. That's what Paul is saying. And you say, that's horrible. Yes, if you've ever had to do that in your household, or if you've ever had that done to you in your household, horrible, right? Horrible. Even coming up to that moment within the church, it's heartbreaking. It's gut-wrenching. It's extremely difficult. And in some cases in home life and in biblical faithfulness, this is the most loving thing that you possibly can do for someone. This is the prodigal son who spent all of his father's money, ran off, did it in sin and lasciviousness in Satan's realm, Satan's world, and suddenly he's feeding the pigs, which as a Jew is reprehensible. He's having to to deny his heritage, his identity, his culture, his safe place, his people, and I'm going to eat not the pig, but what the pig eats. That's my meal. And it took that level of hitting rock bottom for that person, as the Bible says, where he came to himself. That's repentance. He came to himself and said, maybe my father would just take me back even as one of his own servants because that would be a better life than this one. God humbles people when they come to the end of themselves and they start down the path and they see their father in the distance and their father picks up the robe, which was something that a a father who was esteemed at that level would never do. And that father runs to his son takes him in his arms and restores him fully and publicly and throws a party and upsets his, the older brother who's, who's the Pharisee figure going, man, where's my party? Why are you restoring this person who spurned all your money and spurned your name? It's because the redemption story is taking place. This is the gospel of grace that's celebrated in the context of biblical faithfulness. But Paul at this point is saying, deliver this person for the destruction of his flesh. Why? So that he'll be saved in the end. So that we can, we can't throw a party here on earth. One day we'll be throwing a party up in heaven because we followed through. And people say, man, church discipline doesn't work. It won't happen. Listen, it works as well as when someone is kicked out of a house when suddenly they feel it. They feel the accountability on deep levels and God is working in that person's life and in their heart and binding and maybe loosing that person from their sin so that they will come back or be saved at the end as they are dying on their deathbed and then being brought into the presence of the Lord because they repented. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, cleans out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump? The idea is if you maintain that person in a hypocritical state, listen, we either practice church discipline or you are living in hypocrisy, right? If you keep the hypocrite and you keep the, the good face of hypocrisy within the church, it creates conflict. It It spreads It creates sinfulness within the church. Verse 8, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread, the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. He's saying, look, we're not talking about 
being judgmental of people who are outside the church. We're talking about people who want it both ways. I want my sin, and I want my facade, and I want my church fellowship. And he's saying you can't have it both ways. If you're greedy, a swindler, idolater, this is all documented in 1 Corinthians as well. Paul called them out, 1 Corinthians 9. Since then, you would need to go out of the world As a church, if we were judging those people, we would need to say, we don't participate in the world anymore, but we do. We evangelize those people in the world. But, verse 11, now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. This is the idea of the so-called brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, if he's unrepentant, an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Eating with people in this context is the idea of affirming someone in fellowship. It's saying we're in fellowship with each other. We're enjoying meals together. You're fine. Everything is fine spiritually because we are eating together outwardly. And Paul is saying, I'm refusing that. You, you can't do that. You can't put up a facade. Verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? We're not talking about the world here. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. Leave the world to God. Let God do judgment work there. We're called within the church to participate in our discerning each other's lives together. This is not judgmentalism. This is not elitism. This is what makes church serious. It's what makes it holy. This kind of work is what makes the church safe. It's what makes the church joy-filled. It's what makes the church accountable. It's what makes the church a place where children can grow up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord together in the family of God. We are parents, but we're also co-family members in the body of Christ. And this should be one of the richest, most clarified places that you can come to in your week together as the family of God. All right, that was point one. (laughs) There's a couple more, but they're shorter. Let's just wrap up. Biblical church discipline restoration has as its goal reclaiming those who have sinned and veered off the path. We've talked about this. The goal of every type of discipline is gentle correction and admonition and sometimes a, a rebuke and sometimes excommunication, but it's always restoration. The intent is um, always full and complete restoration. It's never for someone to be able to say I'm being singled out or I'm sinned against or treated unfairly. It's always following the biblical path. One person said, although excommunication um, also punishes the man, it does, does so in such a way that by forewarning him of his future condemnation, it may call him back to salvation. Number three, biblical church discipline and restoration maintains the purity of the church and her worship with a specific viewed toward avoidance of profaning the elements of the Lord's Supper. We're going to be entering into a time of sharing in the Lord's Supper. And the importance of that, again, is elevated when you understand the seriousness of what is going on behind the scenes in terms of God's realm, in terms of God's accountability. When the Corinthian church accommodated a man's sexual sin, as was read before, he admonished them in 1 Corinthians 5. But I think that admonishment... Um, is carried forward in 1 Corinthians 11. There were people who were dying, people who were falling sick, who were eating and drinking 
the elements of bread and the cup in an unworthy manner. And he said, that is why, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty, many of you are weak and ill and some have died. You're guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. When you aid in a bad sin within a church, God's judgment is there. We maintain visible purity to the full extent of our knowledge and power It becomes more evident once we recognize that false teachers, false doctrine, and bad conduct are infectious within the body. God is trying to, again, ramp up the immune system within the church. We should have an immune system that is taking care of the body of Christ. Acts 5 is not classic discipline, but you remember Ananias and Sapphira? I mean, did they get struck dead because... They didn't give all their money? No. Peter said, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. They conspired together and they said, okay, let's give this amount, but we'll say that's all we have so we can look really, really good in front of the church. And so, hey, Peter, this is all we have. Is that really all that you have? No. And then the person dropped dead and then his wife came three hours later and said the same thing. And Peter said, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? To Ananias, he fell down and breathed his last. Last in verse 5 says, And great fear came upon all who heard it. Young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out, buried him. Verse 7, three hours later, the wife came in. Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Yes, for so much. And Peter said, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold the feet of those who have buried your husband at the door. They will carry you out. Immediately she fell down, breathed her last. The young men came and found her dead. They carried out and buried her. Okay, so what happened because of this? Guess what? Church growth. Church growth. Verse 11, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they, this is people watching the church from the outside. Hey, guess what? People are dying in there. Did you know Ananias? Well, did you know Sapphira? They died because something happened. Something went sideways with the apostles in their offering time and they died for it. And so there's some really neat miracles that are taking place, but we're not sure we want to join because people die in there. That's the conversation that's going on. Verse 13, none of of the rest dared to join them. Hey, join up, become a member, join our church. But this might happen to you. But listen, but the people held them in high esteem. There was respect for the church at the same time. Verse 14, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. If you follow God's word, God will bless and he adds believers. Multitudes of both men and women. How do you grow a church? By slick programs or offerings or things? Well, I'm all for excellence. I want things to work well. I want there to be, you know, good functional performance here. And I want there to be operational rhythm. I want there to be good organization. I want there to be good accountability. I like, you know, excellence in program, but that doesn't grow the church. That's not what you really long for in your heart. I think you long for biblical faithfulness, and that's why you're here. You long for true accountability. You long for your membership to mean something, to matter. Biblical church discipline number four vindicates the honor and integrity of Christ and Christianity. 
exhibiting fidelity in the principles. I just want to touch on this quickly. 2 Corinthians 2, 6 through 8 um, is where it shows Paul exposing the fact that the Corinthians were not forgiving people. They were not restoring people. They weren't being faithful in the process to the end. And verse 6 says, for such a one, the punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. This is after steps one, two, three, and four. This is after someone returns. You have to embrace them. This is like the book of Philemon. Look, Onesimus is a different person. He's your slave and he, he's returned. So embrace that person who stole from you, who defamed you, embrace a person as a co-laborer and a brother in Christ now. Apparently the Corinthians were refusing to extend forgiveness. We're only faithful in the process, but we're not faithful in the restoration. The process is short-circuited and we're missing the point. One of the most incredible experiences I've had in the faith as a believer was when I was candidating at a church um, as an associate pastor as a 26-year-old, and I went um, on that first weekend by myself and went to Sunday night church, and somehow that church on that Sunday, it landed where this young lady was standing up, and she was confessing that she had been impregnated, and she was with child, and she was crying, and her, her dad was standing behind her, and she was confessing and repenting, and there was supposed to be a sermon that night, but what happened is the whole church stood up and created a line and affirmed her one at a time, restoring her, restoring her, restoring her. So much and so powerful was this moment, and so many people were doing it, that it was awkward to stay seated. Here I am. Hi, my name's Jeff, and I may or may not be coming to your church, but it's too awkward to sit there. Praise the Lord for you and this restoration. It's powerful. As God would have it, it's pretty wild. I became an associate pastor. I married her to her her husband. It was the first marriage I ever officiated. I counseled them through the adoption of that child. And, uh, you know, that family's still there today with many kids and a powerful testimony. That's what biblical restoration looks like. Point five, biblical discipline deters others from sinning. We've kind of covered that with 1 Timothy 5.20. Any one of us could be rebuked in the presence of all, but this has a self-purifying effect. And six, biblical church restoration prevents giving God cause to set himself against a church. And I'm not going to get into this, but Revelation 2, if you read that again, I've been reading those. I read those as the reading, <clears throat> the reading of God's word recently. But there are immoralities, there are sins, there are things that are allowed to go on within a church where Christ pronounced a judgment saying, this I have against you. And as you know, the accounts of the seven churches, many of which just went out of existence altogether because they would not obey God's command. A local church leadership, when it refuses to discipline its members, then that local church is in danger of being judged by God himself, even to the point of being judged out of existence. Look, nearly every organization practices discipline of one form or another. They're corrective measures, fraudulent lawyers, If you're watching the NBA playoffs, if somebody takes a swing at somebody else, guess what? They're going to get fined. If they foul hard enough, they're going to be fined, right? Malpracticing doctors, teachers can be fired. Um, A coach who's 
leading practices but won't bench a player or, or send someone to the locker room or kick a person off the team that's destroying the team from the inside is no coach at all. You don't respect a coach who's unwilling to do that. Athletes need instruction and they need practice. They need practice and they need correction. Teachers need to give homework assignments and actually grade the papers. Doctors need to fight diseases. Doctors need to not ignore health concerns like cancer. A teach, uh, churches often will teach and make disciples, but not discipline. The word, make, the word disciple and discipline are, are from the same etymological family. They're the same word family. So if you love disciples, love making disciples, then you're going to love discipline. The problem is, is that There's malpractice in the church, cancerous tumors that are lethal when left alone but need to be dealt with for the sake of health. It's not being proud or judgmental. This is the love of a father, Hebrews 12. We, again, don't have time to unpack that one. Hebrews 12, 6 and following. The Lord disciplines the ones that he loves. He treats believers as sons. The sons respect the father for the discipline Discipline for us is for a short time, it seems. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Might seem painful in the moment rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It's for repentance. It's for weak sheep not to be led astray. It's for... So Christian, non-Christian neighbors can see us and not be confused about our witness, and it's to protect the honor of the Lord. 